Families come in all shapes and sizes. Was yours a regular family? Mother, father, brother or sister? Were you all happy little Vegemites? Probably not. There is a messiness in human life and when we need help, it is often a therapist we go to. Jacinta Halloran has families and therapy at the heart of her new book, Resistance. Welcome back, Jacinta. Thank you, Janet. It's wonderful to be back. Oh, good. Nina is the therapist, and through the book we see that her family life with mother, father and brother is not straightforward either. But it is through her job that she meets a family that are having mandated therapy. What's that? Well, that is when uh, there might have been a court case because something happened in this case, in this family, the Agostino family is the, the family in the book. They allegedly stole a car and there's some reluctance about the family to talk about what happened and they end up in a court being charged with this theft of a vehicle. And because they won't talk about it or explain their situation much, the judge decides that they should have some family therapy. So the, the court mandates them to have the therapy. And they don't really want to have it. And that's quite evident in the way they present the therapist. There's blood in a child's bed. The house is abandoned through a meal. No telling the neighbours or the school that they were going. As you said, the stolen car and the story of a dead dog in the boot. So <laughs> let's hear from your book, Resistance, about Claude and Lisa Agostino when Nina first saw them in her waiting room. So this is Nina speaking. I returned to my room and tidied my desk until Olivia rang to say the Agostinos had arrived. Back in the waiting room, I hovered at reception, searching them out before they noticed me. They were a handsome couple. She, small-boned and blue-eyed, with a wide face and a delicate nose, and he, tall and smooth-skinned, with a thick head of hair just beginning to grey, his cheekbones and drawline angular and well-proportioned. They were dressed in faded jeans and workaday checked shirts, and their boots were scuffed and dusty. Such were the things I consciously registered. I called their names and extended my hand when they approached. At close range, their physical differences were all the more striking, yet seemed to work in concert. It was as if his eyes were rendered greener by the blueness of hers, as if her hair took on more shine against his matte, thick curls. So Lisa and Claude Agostino got two children, 12-year-old Poppy and 7-year-old Theo. Nina has to decide about their ability to parent and if the children are safe with their parents. So let's. what does Lisa, the mother, tell Nina about her early life? Again, she's reluctant to divulge, but she ends up talking about her grandmother, who was a Russian immigrant. She talks about a doll's house that was in the family for many generations and how as a child she coveted that but that her mother still held on to that doll's house. She, has, she, she remembers her grandmother with a great deal of affection, but she has a cooler relationship with mm. her own mother. And she talks about her mother always reading. That's what she remembers most of her mother, that her mother always had her head in a book. She went off to have a life with the danger element, like pearl diving, but she's settled right down now since marrying Claude. So what do we learn about Claude's early life? 
We don't learn a lot and it's very reluctantly given. We, we do know that his mother was of an a, a Italian extraction, hence the name, Ag- or his parents were, sorry, so hence the name Agostino. And, and also we learned about his sister, how he competed with her or she competed with mm. him a lot. And uh, later on we sort of uncover the reasons for that and, and there are pretty painful reasons for Claude as to why he starts to see all that in a very different light once he understands, well, the story of his birth. Let's put it that way. They live uh, on a farm mm. and so rather sheltered and we know that Claude's mother died about a year ago. But as parents, they have some strong views on society how do they enforce these views? I think they enforce them in in uh, a good way. I mean, personally, that they were quite almost rigid about their views. But when you actually look at the views they have, their views are about the environment, um, which is something that personally I feel quite strongly about, and views about healthy behaviour for their children. So you know, not using te- not using screens a lot, not eating a lot of bad food. These are the things that they think are very, very important. But the way they sort of, well, enforce, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't actually use the word enforce. I would say the way they try and educate their kids is by being very close to their children and being very honest with them. And and this is something that emerges, I think, in, in the book, that there's a worry that these parents uh, are, are slightly wacky. Uh, but I think what what the therapist, Nina, comes to understand is that, in fact, they are good parents. I think Lisa turns it on the head about being, well, not, as you say, not controlling, but living a good life. She talks about feeding a a child nourishing food and keeping them non-addicted. And this is why she's so critical of the food and gaming industry because it manufactures what a good parent should be. You know, take your child to a golden arches place and... (laughs) <laughs> that that's that that makes a happy family with a happy meal. Yeah, that's right. So I think they're prepared to stand up for what they believe in, even if it sort of marginalises them. The, these two parents, and in fact, you know, that's part of the title as well. That resistance can be a psychological term, which means that in the therapy room, the clients are not going ahead with the therapy. They're sort of refusing to engage with it, and it can be a slightly pejorative term. But in some ways, I like to see it as a, a, a more noble term, that they are resisting, that the Agostino parents, Claude and Lisa, are resisting a lot of things. They're standing up for what they truly believe is right. And uh, so it takes on a nobler uh, connotation, I think. A strategy for therapists is to sometimes leave the room to let the parents talk. And therapists also have to have a clinical supervisor why is that and who is Nina's? Yes, well, there is an idea in, super, in, in therapy that uh, if you're struggling with a case, it might be because there are blocks in the process that you can't really see because they're applying, they've got sort of resonances in your own blocks, your own sort of personal blocks or your own personal hang-ups. So the idea is to talk about it with someone who supervises you and gives you other ways of seeing the issue. So, yes, Nina goes along to meet an older therapist. Nina's in her 30s. She meets a woman probably in her 60s called Erin, who's older and sort of looser in her approach. And 
she's she's been working for a while in in sort of therapy and she's just sort of loosened up and she's quite she's quite unorthodox in the way she responds mm. to <laughs> Nina uh, and that was partly to sort of put some lightness and humor in in into the work but then in the end what happens is that Nina and Erin start to sort of really share stories of their own lives and mm. they become close Erin's own family story about her husband, her own parenting and addiction are another case of messy families. Through the book, there are so many other family stories. So many. Tell us one of them. The lightest sort of and most entertaining one to tell is the one right at the beginning of the book where one of the other therapists comes into Nina's room and plonks itself down in a chair and starts to debrief about what happened that morning on the way to taking her child to school and it was the the book week event and she'd been sewing this elaborate monster costume for this boy he's a he's a six-year-old boy I think and uh, she thought she'd done an amazing job and she sort of started to dress him that morning and then he he realized that she was going to put him in runners and he had this idea that he looked at the book that he was modelling the costume on and it had these elaborate monster feet and she hadn't made them, you know, and he absolutely loses it. And it's just a, it's a sort of an amusing story about family and how, as, as the therapist says, one minute everyone's so happy and joyous and the next minute the place is just in complete chaos. And and the situation wasn't saved by the therapist, the mother. The sister was saved by the young daughter. That's right. Yes, the young daughter stepped up and sort of sorted things out and, got and um, you know, sorted something out for his feet. So, uh, so you know, it, 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 I think a lot of people responded to that particular story. I think they feel like they've been there in some way. Oh, yeah. yes. Oh, yes. Another story I enjoyed. A neighbour watches the family next door grow up in silence and privacy with no visits from any other family members or friends was discouraged. When their daughter grows up and finds her extended family, she comes back to tell her neighbour about all the lovely mob she got to know. So what was showing here was her mother was showing complete resistance to the Aboriginal background. Mm. And Mm. one brings up that word shame. Mm. And Erin and Nina have a discussion about shame Mm -hmm. and guilt. Shame is kept secret and uh, and no use. But when it is verbalised, the guilt at least motivates us to do something different. Mm. From this very personal story to a society level, and you're going to tell me about colonialisation and how that fits into the story. Okay, well, it's complicated. It's complicated in that uh, there are a lot of circles of stories, but out of out of those circles, out of the net of stories, you, it tightens together to show that that maybe what we feel when we feel shame, it's not only shame about our own personal past, but maybe there could be. It's floated in the novel. There could be a national shame, a collective shame, about uh, co- colonial wrongdoings. Every family is different, and interesting to Halloran's resistance, it is a therapist's job to decide if a mother and father are fit parents. But what with so many other family stories in the book, how can anyone decide what makes a good parent? Jacinta, thank you. Um, we've run out of time, but oh, golly, good book. Good book. Thank you, Jan. It was lovely to speak to you. And the best therapy, Jan? A good book. <laughs>
But now we're going to play my pre-record with Dominic Smith. From ancient grudge break to new mutiny. These words from Romeo and Juliet find a resonance in Dominic Smith's latest novel, Return to Valletto, where we find that the repercussions of history echo through time. So, Dominic, welcome back to 3CR. Thank you so much for having me. Hugh Fisher is a Michigan historian who specialises in abandonment of all things, and he's published a book on vanishing Italian towns. Volcanoes and war have had an impact on Italy. Yep. For sure, yeah. I mean, Hugh as our narrator, so he's a social historian and he specializes in abandoned places. And sort of the way the conceit of the novel is set up is that he has very personal but also professional reasons for returning to Valletto. So uh, Valletto is the town where his mother was born and raised uh, and where he spent his childhood summers. And he has written about abandoned places, especially in Italy, and sort of having, he's having a moment in his own career. But he's also lost his wife. Uh, he's recently widowed. He's also lost his mother. And the professional and the personal come together because he inherits this small stone cottage at the back of the family's villa in the town of Valletto, uh, where Hugh's elderly grandmother and aunts still live. But the complication is for him as a historian, but also as a, as a middle-aged man, is that when he gets back to the town, he discovers that this cottage where he intends to sort of spend a sabbatical and do a little bit of guest lecturing has actually been taken over by a woman from the north of Italy, a woman named Elisa Tomasi, who claims that actually the cottage was left to her family in return for the help they gave to Hugh's grandfather, Aldo Serafino, when he fled the area in 1944 as part of the resistance movement against the fascists and the Germans. So Hugh, as our narrator and as, as a historian, is sort of wedged between these, these conflicting forces. And he really embodies that notion of history of having to perhaps try and separate the personal from the clinical, where you look at history without influence, mm. so to speak. But also his father has committed suicide mm -hmm. in the past. So there's yep. that he yep. has to deal with. It's six years since his wife has died, yep. and yet he's still dealing with that. So That's right. events of the past take time to assimilate, accommodate, uh, yeah. and as you overcome. But as you say, there's this cottage in the family estate. But also then, there are his three aunts who live there, Rose, Violet, and Iris, and in some ways, their lives have been influenced by the past mm. as well. They've had to mm. make decisions because of the war. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you know, sort of the way that Hugh experiences history is on, you know, a very personal level, you know, with his family. The events of World War II have dramatically shaped the town of Valletta, which is based on a, on a real place uh, that we can talk about also. But the forces of World War II, especially the sort of divide between fascism and the sort of German uh, invasion of Italy during World War II and the partisan movement, uh, really sort of bifurcated a lot of small towns and settlements where, uh, you know, even in my own research, I would travel to places and I would hear 
comments about like you know an abandoned house and someone would say well that belonged to the fascist that used to live here so italians have this incredible sense of the way that history continues to flow into the present and i think you see that physically when you travel in a place like rome and you can be standing on a street corner and you see monuments from the etruscan era the roman era you also see sometimes fascist monuments and the way in which all these things coincide is something I was really interested in with the book. And also the question for Hugh is, can you ever be truly impartial about the legacies and the debts of history? Because they keep showing up. Well, that debt, because Aldo, Ida's husband, now Ida's the grandmother. Yeah, the centenarian. She's about to turn 100. Turn 100, there's going to yeah. be a big birthday. Yeah, yeah. And yet this debt would go back 60 years or yeah. more yeah. when uh, Aldo was elsewhere but yeah. was saved by yeah. Elisa's family yeah. and such like. So should that debt be paid? Should you wipe it clean? Right. There's a difficulty there. But also then, in doing his research about who owns this cottage, did Hazel, his mother, have the right to bequeath it to him when she passed away? Hugh comes across a treasure trove of letters mm which reveal a side of his mother that he never knew. Mm -hmm. And these letters were written to... Alessia, Alessia. Uh, the mother of the woman in the cottage. And they were girls together yep. during the yep. war. And here we go again with history, yep. because Alessia had to relocate mm -hmm. because a lot of children were... Moved to safety from yep. places like Milan and Turin that were being bombed. Yeah. And they have a bond, Alessia and Hazel have a bond which is revealed in these letters, which Hugh had no awareness yeah. of, yeah. and it reveals a side of his mother he was completely unfamiliar yeah. with. Yeah, I mean, I think the other question here is the way silences are often passed down in families and how silences can also flow across generations with respect to history. And so what Hugh discovers through those letters, you know, so much of the novel is about pulling on this thread of finding these gaps in the family history and then pulling on a thread and finding another little sort of layer in the in the strata until he eventually comes upon this treasure trove of letters in the north of Italy where his grandfather was sheltered by this family. And he sort of discovers a missing person there, if you will. This woman who was everything his mother wasn't in real life as he knew her as a son. She's open, she's thoughtful, she's sort of showing up in a really sort of intimate way in this correspondence. And, you know, the book is really about the way in which we preserve and curate some stories in our families, but we also hide others. And what happens at that moment of discovery for our own sense of who we are. But it also suggests that we can't ever really truly know right. another person because of right. their past. And here's the past that is revealed, and we can't tell the listener, but Alessia and Hazel disappeared mm. for three days right. back then. And this has influenced their lives mm -hmm. up until the present day. Yeah, and that's another kind of gap that the book deals with. The events of those three days have left a profound impact. Hazel, the mother of Hugh, she's already passed away when the book begins. Alessia, obviously, is, is still alive. And I'm sort of also interested in the book in 
intergenerational trauma because, you know, sometimes the stories, even though they haven't been fully told, they're still felt in the lived experience of the people who are continuing. And I think, you know, I was talking to someone the other day about this, like, there is a way in which our own sense of our where we fit into our family's histories are sometimes shaped by not only the stories we tell, but the stories we don't tell. I mean, if you think about people who've lived, you know, who lived through World War One or World War Two, often their debt of gratitude was to actually sort of live in silence about those things rather than this, uh, they, they felt like it would be burdensome. But you're raised with the spectre of the Mm. past. So whatever's happened to your parents is imparted onto the child. And so that echoes throughout time. But here we get to the interesting thing, because the perpetrator of uh, what happened to those girls Mm -hmm. is still alive. That's right. And so now we have another conundrum. He's 97? 96. 96. And so... Should there be retribution? Should there be an accounting? He's going to die anyway yeah. shortly. Right. He's in a, an aged yeah. care home. Mm-hmm. What do you do right. with history? Yeah, exactly. And what do you do within a small community, within a family? So one of, the, uh, one of Hugh's aunts, Iris, uh, was a sociologist you know, when she was working. And there's this whole concept in the book of a denunciation. What is a denunciation? And it is really in some ways this formalized moment where we as a community make an accusation or sort of point out the wrongdoing of, of someone and we hold them to account. And that to me is it's a fascinating sort of response. And I think it grapples with this question of is there you know, there may be legally a statute of limitations for most wrongdoings, but in terms of family, and maybe even especially in an Anglo-Italian family like this one, can you really wipe the slate clean? And also you've got the sort of contemporary attitude of forgiveness, mm-hmm. you know, the Christian yeah. doctrine there. Should that be applied? Should right. you really pursue and mm-hmm. get justice? But again, you've still got the ripple effect Mm -hmm. because it's going to affect the children of the perpetrator as well. Such a denunciation. So where does it stop? Right. Well, that's a great question. And I think, you know, know, novels, when they're working well, are raising these sorts of moral and ethical questions. I think the other thing that, you know, when I've looked at the way people experience trauma, I mean, so often what it's really about is giving voice to the trauma and bearing witness to it. Uh, And that was something that I was really interested in. It's not so much can you calibrate the scales, can you actually fully punish the crimes of the past. It's really about, for those who have borne witness to it, for those who are still living, can they find some peace or some sense of resolution by at least looking at their perpetrator in the eye and sort of holding them to account? And that may be more important. But here's the other goat. It seems to be very Italian (laughs) as well. I don't know if it's politically correct to, to label a community or a, a culture. Yeah. But as I said, Romeo and Juliet yeah. breaks to New Mutiny. Yeah. It seems you, you have got the vendetta. The vendetta, yeah. I mean, that's a very old, you know, that, that word was ported over into English 
during the height of Victorian poisonings, you know, <laughs> where people, it really became a sort of common usage in English. And it comes from that Italian, uh, I think, inherited uh, sort of trope around revenge and the way in which families are everything. And, you know, it's probably true in most cultures, but certainly it's been, uh, you know, portrayed heavily when it comes to Italian culture. Well, it's a fascinating look and insight into culture. The other interesting thing I found, and we probably won't have time to discuss it, the grandmother, Ida, came from Australia. That's right. That's and, right. and there's a history to that because yep. in Australia we normally look at it the other way, the migration yep. that right. came. So there's the reverse. But look, to puzzle through all of uh, what happens, what happens to Hazel and Alessia, and to find out who the perpetrator is and what the actual crime was mm -hmm. and what the outcome is of the so-called denunciation, the listener is going to have to pick up a copy of Return to Valletto by Dominic Smith, and it is an Allen and Unwin release. So, Dominic, thank you very much for talking with me today. Thank you. appreciate it. And I was talking with Jacinta Halloran about her book Resistance, and it was a text publication.